What comes to mind when you hear that term brainwashing? Well, perhaps the Manchurian candidate or Uyghur re-education camps, the Manson family cult, or the jingles that worm their way into our brains. Does this also amount to a, a form of thought control? Dr Daniel Pick is an historian and psychoanalyst, and he's the author of a new book called Brainwashed, A New History of Thought Control. Uh, Daniel explores the concept of brainwashing from its origins after the Second World War and asks whether understanding this history might help us build our, well, our mental resilience to everything from advertising to QAnon. Daniel, welcome to the Little Wireless Program. And you were writing your book before Putin decided to invade Ukraine. Excellent timing, I would have thought. Well, horribly timely, yes. Well, thanks very much for inviting me to discuss it with you. And yes, it's very much um, a history that resonates now. And actually, just in your previous, as I was listening to you talking to Dana Morse, I heard words like indoctrination and identities being erased in the course of your conversation with her. So the idea of indoctrination is another term, but brainwashing is the one that caught on uh, after the Second World War to sort of describe the possession of the mind. Who and when was it actually coined? Well, um, the person who's attributed with coining it, well, certainly the person who popularised it was um, an American journalist called Edward Hunter writing in a newspaper, the Miami News, uh, in 1950. And he used this term. He thought he was translating a Chinese term and his concern was with Chinese brainwashing, Maoist brainwashing, just after the People's Republic of China was created. So he wanted to warn his readers and the American public about this new set of techniques, as he saw it, that could be used to manipulate and even totally possess the mind of captive peoples. Going back to what Dana was saying, there's an assumption, isn't there, here, about the moral superiority of Western values. Yes, and I mean, we're, we're faced now, aren't we, with these existential questions about freedom and totalitarianism again today. And I mean, there, there are important, crucial differences between societies and there are things to fight for or to be on the side of and against other things. So clearly, there, it's not that everything is the same. But there was also in the Cold War a kind of assumption that the West was simply the free world or that capitalism was also the route to freedom. And these these ideas could easily lead to a kind of condescension or claim of superiority. Let's go back to the Korean War, because uh, the world or the Western world was shocked when some American POWs declined to come home. Yeah, it, th that was really when this debate exploded and became a kind of great theme in American popular culture and, and also in just everyday conversation. Because the term well, as we were just discussing a moment ago, was was coined in 1950. But then in 1953, at the end of the Korean War, when there were large numbers of POWs on both sides, and they, you know, had the option to go home, and the UN brokered the peace arrangements and the uh, repatriation. But there was an idea that they should be able to choose where they would go, that they shouldn't be forced to go home. And actually, the American side were very keen to ensure that communist prisoners were not forced back to China or North Korea. So, and, and many of those POWs did choose to go elsewhere, but the, the, there was this furore around a small group 
It ended up as 21 American GIs. There were a couple of others who changed their minds, but it ended with 21 Americans and one British soldier who, given the choice uh, on release from captivity, choose to go and live in China. And that leads to a huge kind of debate. How could it possibly be that they would freely choose to reject the West and go and live in, in Mao's People's Republic? I think the, uh, the position of Clarence Adams is interesting here. It is. He was one, Clarence Adams was one of these 21 American GIs. He was an African-American soldier. And he, he put the, there was a posthumously published memoir after he died. His, his daughter and a historian in, this, in the States published it about why he went to China. It was called An American Dream, his book. And he says it wasn't that he was brainwashed. It was just that when he thought about the options of going back to Memphis, where he was from and to the uh, politics of the US and racism, he thought, why would I choose that? And he was interested in having an adventure in finding a better life in, in exploring a new land, and he thought of himself as choosing freely to go elsewhere. So here's a paradox. While the CIA is sort of muttering terrible things about this ghastly notion of brainwashing, they're into it themselves. Tell me about the Manhattan Project of the Mind. Yes, well, there were um, all sorts of experiments done after the war. I mean, some of them actually were even wartime experiments before the CIA was created. The predecessor of the CIA was the Office of Strategic Services in Washington, and they explored new techniques of interrogation and uh, denazification and trying to use psych psychology and psychiatry um, and even psychoanalytic insights to understand prisoners and to, to kind of gain information and also to sow misinformation like sort of dirty tricks operations, you know, in, in Nazi Germany to demoralize the population. But post-war, there were really much more elaborate experiments done by, um, orchestrated by the CIA, often co-opting psychiatrists and researchers in universities and hospitals to explore what happens, for instance, when you deprive people of ordinary um, social relationships, of even access to light or dark or sleep. So sleep deprivation or putting people also into um, it, lo long states of sleep or comas. Um, all sorts of things were, were tried in projects that uh, drug drug experiments too, the, the, under the auspices of projects which had esoteric code names like MK Ultra. That's the most famous one, and it started in the early fifties. I'm talking to uh, historian and psychoanalyst Daniel Pick about his book Brainwashing: A New History of Thought Control. Of course, it uh, becomes a plaything of popular culture, doesn't it? And uh, I understand it even pops up in an episode of The Simpsons. It does, actually, where poor Homer is smitten by a cult and it's a kind of spoof about uh, cults and their popularity in the West and people giving up everything to go and follow a particular guru or leader and losing their capacity to think for themselves. So we have Homer in that particular episode, sort of um, in, in the thrall of a cult and um, whilst the kind of um, th this guru rides around in a Rolls Royce, Homer is kind of giving away the deeds to his house and <laughs> who comes to the rescue in the end is Marge who saves him, but only to go home to Springfield to watch and this is the sort of gag at the end of that cartoon, Fox News and it's a particular gag because The Simpsons is actually um, you know, it is, is part of um, the Fox network, but yes, it was it's a about kind the of only, satire The only good thing that Rupert's ever done really 
Yeah, well, anyway, so it was. It had this kind of sting in the tail about the way in which we're influenced or, or potentially brainwashed by the news. So that was um, quite satirical. I'm of an age when I remember that in the US in particular, Christianity was very alarmed by, say, the Beatles or rock and roll because these, these were seen as brainwashing the young. Yeah, I mean, I try to weave... I mean, the, the book is primarily about the sort of more serious and disturbing aspects of the story, but it was always a theme, you know, in music and cartoons. And you know, even before the word brainwashing was coined, there were lots of stories about the kind of takeover of brains and terrifying pulp fictions about this. But yeah, in, in music, I mean, the Beatles were accused of, of brainwashing the young. They were seen either as agents of communism or sometimes of capitalism. So on both sides in the Cold War, there are suspicions about the Beatles. George Harrison, after the Beatles breakup, actually wrote a song called Brainwash that's worth a, a listen, uh, if your uh, listeners are interested in in that. But Presley, Elvis Presley as well. I mean, there's a story I tell in the book about Elvis Presley actually going to meet Richard Nixon with um, uh, a request that he be sworn in as a special agent <laughs> to stop, quote, the brainwashing of the young. So it comes up everywhere. Now, today we uh, hear less about brainwashing and more about re-education which we're seeing in Russia, but to a greater extent, of course, in China. Is this just brainwashing by another name? Well, we, we do have all these new terms like radicalization and de-radicalization and there's re-education that was, you know, has had many different meanings over the over the decades. So post-war, there was an idea also of re-educating Nazis back or denazifying the German population, re-educating them to liberal democracy. But re-education then became a term used in Mao's China to re-educate the peasants and the lumpen proletariat to, to, towards Maoism. And now, you know, we have, of course, these, these things are debate and debated and they feel very terrifyingly alive, both in what's going on in the northwest of China, but also now you know, the stories coming out of uh, of Russia and uh, and Ukraine about what's happening also to captive people and the the idea of, quote, re-educating them. I remember it happening on a large scale in the aftermath of, of the Vietnam War. Now, Daniel, tell me about the 1953 book called The Captive Mind. Yeah, well, that was a really important book that I, I wanted to give space to because it's much less well-known than George Orwell's 1984, which kind of came out in 1949, which was about, you know, totalitarian, total takeover of the mind, Big Brother and Paul Winston Smith, who sort of is tortured into submission. And The Captive Mind was 1953. It was written by a Polish um, dissident. Well, he became, um, he became a defector, not a dissident, a defector. He'd been a cultural emissary to the Polish government, but he defected to pa in Paris in 1951. Um, uh, Miłosz was his name. He later won the Nobel Prize for Literature in, in 1980. But he wrote this book trying to describe life in Stalinist Poland that had just escaped from this society. And he thought that it was very difficult for Western people, readers, to sort of know what that was like. And he didn't think it was just like the fate of Winston Smith, where you were brainwashed, he rather wanted to convey the very many different ways people adapted or compromised or reconciled themselves to that society, sometimes, you know, falling for it, sort of, you know, sort of in a way being smitten by communism, but often in a more cynical way, bargaining with a society or keeping their private thoughts to themselves and just publicly performing their allegiance. And he brilliantly set, that, set it out in this book, The Captive Mind. 
if you go back to uh, to the Hitler years, there was an almost ecstatic quality in the way people decided to buy all that rubbish and that horror that led to Holocaust. That fascinates me, the way people seem to almost want to have their minds controlled. Well, again, I think that's so important what you're saying there, because even before the word brainwashing emerges in in the interwar period, the 1920s and 30s, there's a a really important literature in psychoanalysis and psychology about group psychology and the group psychology of fascism. So Freud writes about this and other, other followers write in the 30s about mass psychology and and what happens in groups and crowds and i think that kind of that theme then comes up again post-war in all sorts of experiments with groups the development of group therapy and also new terms a part of that vocabulary of the 1950s i mean we've mentioned brainwashing and thought reform and um in you know those terms but there's also the term groupthink that is coined in 1952 so i give some space to thinking about what was at stake in that idea. It's another word we sort of use now in everyday speech, you know, just like brainwashing, we say that's groupthink. And I think it's quite interesting just to explore how that concept emerged and what people were worrying about, you know, back back then. Time, I think, to go to Madison Avenue, Mad Men and uh, Don Draper. Tell us about Ernest Dichter. Well, he was the, the bete noir of a journalist called Vance Packard, who wrote another seminal book of the 1950s, The Hidden Persuaders. And Dichter was one of his targets. Um, Dichter was an emigre psychologist uh, in the US who made a very successful career developing what he called motivational research to help the advertising industry and Madison Avenue to really probe uh, in depth what people desired or feared and to then use their more unconscious uh, knowledge of their unconscious fears and and wishes to then craft advertising campaigns and he became a kind of great uh, guru of the advertising world in that period and Packard wrote this expose very sort of melodramatic book but important best selling book about the wiles of the advertising industry called the hidden persuaders and dichter was one of the people he explores. Tell us about Dicta and the humble prune. Well, yeah, I, again, I kind of take my lead from Packard because he rather wittily talks about this in his 50, 1957 book. And I, I then did a lot of research on prunes because Dicta was called in by the California Prune Board to try to kind of um, revamp the image of the prune. California had a big share of the um, the prune market, you know, and um, the, the the people involved in that wanted to expand the market. And Dichter came in to try to understand why people didn't buy prunes. And he did all these focus groups and in-depth interviews. And he found, of course, you know, it won't perhaps surprise your listeners that people's associations to prunes are not particularly romantic or glamorous, but rather are associated with their bowels and uh, going to the toilet and constipation and Daniel, so on. And so Dick I'm sorry, Daniel, to revamp it. This is a family program. But <laughs> okay, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Okay. I'll, so I'll how, how did he anyway, fix it? Well, for the reasons you're saying, it it was a subject people were squeamish about. So he tries to to change the image of the prune and to um, to get people thinking about sport and the outdoors and nature, and even to say it's not a dried sort of desiccated fruit. It's a fruit full full of sunshine. It's packed full of sun rather than being devoid of moisture. He tries to kind of check, transform the branding and the image of the prune. <laughs> 
Now, last night on the programme, we were discussing Trump's increasing enthusiasm for QAnon. So what what do conspiracy theories like that suggest about our susceptibility? Are we all ready to be brainwashed in the right conditions? Well, actually, I was just thinking as you were asking that question, the prune is a kind of more, you know, amusing example. Cigarettes and toxic products were also being rebranded. And in politics, we've got very used to toxic forms of politics today. And the way in which people can be manipulated in, you know, very, very kind of disturbing, even crazy ways by demagogues or by conspiracy theories. Of course, what I try to explore at the end of the book is paranoia. In politics, and again, taking my lead from one of the great explorations of this in in that earlier period, an essay called "The Paranoid Style in American Politics," that looked at conspiracy theories, that acknowledged, of course, there can be real plots in any society. It's not that we don't have things to worry about, but the way in which, on the other hand, imaginary fears uh, can be whipped up and mobilized um, in a way to also to distract people from the real dangers they face into a kind of psychotic world of anxiety. How can we as a society better arm ourselves to resist attempts to influence our thinking? Eat more prunes, perhaps? Well, no, I don't know about eating eating more prunes, although that wouldn't be particularly harmful. But I think, um, again, there's such a rich literature from that period that we can use now. I think Hannah Arendt, one of the great political philosophers of that period, offers us lots to think about, both about totalitarian dangers and the importance, in a way, of protecting, you know, to sort of protect against those lures through, the, you know, in a way, the power of civil society and the kinds of institutions that liberal democracies did create and uh, develop post-war that are now under such massive attack that one can see in Trump's America or in many parts of the world, but where the kinds of checks and balances and, and agencies that enable people to think again or to have um, facts rather than uh, fake news and so on, or to have an independent judiciary or an independent press or, dem- or real democratic procedures and social protections get eroded and attacked. And conversely, how we can try to, in a way, protect them and shore them up. Daniel, you're a tonic and I'm very grateful for your time. Daniel Pick, psychoanalyst, historian, his book is Brainwashed, a new history of thought control published in Australia by Alan and Unwin. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.